0: At the outset, nothing in this podcast should be interpreted as legal advice. Further, the views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent those of the university. Please email Campbell Reporter at email.campbell.edu for any media inquiries and third-party distributions. Welcome to the Campbell Law Reporter podcast. This legal podcast strives to expand Campbell University's mission to lead with purpose. By reporting with purpose... We hope to breathe new life into the dusty reporters on the shelves by reporting the content through captivating discussions. Our mission is to provide current and interesting reporting on legal topics affecting today's professionals. Listeners can expect to hear from various hosts throughout the year.
1: Welcome to this episode of Campbell Law Reporter. My name is Bailey, your host for today. I am joined by Professor Robert Montgomery. In this episode, we discuss Professor Montgomery's arguments in front of the United States Supreme Court, how to be an effective appellate brief writer, and skills every oralist needs for appellate arguments. Good morning, listeners. This is Bailey, and I have with me today Professor Robert Montgomery from Campbell Law School. So could you tell us a little bit about your legal background?
2: I uh, graduated from law school at UNC, and after that, I clerked for the chief judge at the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I thought I was going to become a real estate attorney, but that wasn't what was going to happen for me and I didn't really know what I wanted to do so like a lot of people I figured out how to stick around somewhere and that was at the Court of Appeals. So I was a staff attorney at the Court of Appeals for about 11 years. Then I decided I wanted to get out and actually be an advocate of some kind. I mean being a staff attorney is a lot like being a law clerk. I was doing a lot of work for the judges but I wanted to do something else and so I went to the North Carolina Department of Justice to work in their criminal appeals section that seemed to be something that fit with my experience and i did that for a number of years i became the head of that section and then i became the head of the criminal division at the attorney general's office which we had special prosecutors and various other people that were in our division i retired from there about a year and a half ago and became a full-time member of the faculty at Campbell. I had been an adjunct at Campbell for about eight years. And before that, I had been an adjunct at UNC for about 15 years. So I've mostly been in the appeal area during my career.
1: And you mentioned that you fell into this process of not really knowing what you wanted to do right out of law school, which is common. But what ultimately led to your interest in appellate law and doing appellate casework?
2: I really liked to write, and I had a background with a degree in journalism, and I didn't really want to be a newspaper reporter or anything like that, but I could use some of what I had learned in writing and what I liked in writing to do appellate work. I didn't really think that being in the courtroom and having to think on my feet was really for me. I mean, I think I could have done it, but I sort of liked a more academic life of being able to take my time. And appellate work to me is like doing puzzles and trying to figure out problems. And and I liked that a lot. And the criminal side of it, I got into, I found when I was at the North Carolina Court of Appeals, I just found criminal cases more interesting than a lot of other kinds of cases. With civil cases, you're usually talking about moving money around. With criminal cases, you're talking about taking people's liberty away. So I just found that interesting. So that's kind of how I got into it.
1: Focusing on the oral argument part that comes with appellate work, how did that transition from loving to be a writer to having to kind of think on your feet and be in the moment? What steps did you take to learn how to acquire those skills?
2: That was probably the thing that caused me the most anxiety in doing that kind of work was to actually get up in front of people and do an oral argument and answer questions and be on the spot. It just really was a lot of practice in doing it. I mean, there was no other way to do it except to practice a lot. And I always tell people, I mean, the big thing about oral argument is acting like you know what you're talking about. So you have to be a little bit of an actor. So I think I learned at some point, you know, just, I usually would think I would ignore the people that were sitting behind me watching. I could ignore them. It was the judges that were up in front of me that I had to worry about. And so I just focused on them and it got a little easier.
1: Could you briefly discuss the two cases that you have argued in front of the United States Supreme Court? What were the issues and a short summary of how those cases got to the Supreme Court?
2: Sure. So the first one was Hind versus North Carolina that was argued in October of 2014. So that case was a case in which some sheriff's deputies stopped a car on I 77, I think near Yadkinville. They saw that a brake light was out on the car and believed they had reasonable suspicion to stop the car. They stopped the car. The owner of the car actually was asleep in the back seat of the car. The driver was not the owner, but the owner eventually consented to a search of the car. Funny how they always do that, or they seem to do that. And then they find cocaine in the car. So the issue became whether the officers had reasonable suspicion to stop the car, which everybody thought they did because there was a brake light out. But we didn't really realize some very ingenious attorneys sort of put together some statutes and figured out that in North Carolina, it was not illegal to have one brake light out. You had to have both out. So there was not a violation for a brake light being out. So was there reasonable suspicion? Our position was there was because everybody thought if you had a brake light out, that was against the law, and that that was a reasonable mistake for the officer to make. But the issue was, could there be a reasonable mistake of law? There are plenty of United States Supreme Court cases saying there could be a reasonable mistake of fact. But... The North Carolina Supreme Court ultimately agreed with us that there could be a reasonable mistake of law. It was a four-to-three decision, and then a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Fisher got involved in the case. He's a professor at Stanford who's argued, I don't know how many cases, 50 cases at the U.S. Supreme Court, maybe not quite that many, but he, he argued cases like Crawford and Blakely and Riley v. California. He had been a clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court anyway. He got involved and got the U.S. Supreme Court to take the case. So we ended up going to the U.S. Supreme Court, and we actually did better at the U.S. Supreme Court than we did at the North Carolina Supreme Court. We won eight to one, but that was the first time the US Supreme Court said that a reasonable mistake of law could be used in the reasonable suspicion kind of a case. The second case, which I don't like to talk about as much because we lost, is Packingham versus North Carolina, which very succinctly was a case about the statute in North Carolina that said that sex offenders, people on the sex offender registry could not be on social media. And the fact is that the statute was written at that time, at least 10 years before the case came up back in the early days of social media. And it just wasn't written very well. And so there were arguments that it would keep you off of a sex offender, off of, just about any website that anybody could comment on, which I think maybe when the statute was written, people didn't realize there was gonna be all this commenting on things. Anyway, but that case didn't turn out quite as well because of the broadness of the statute. We lost that one eight to zero, but I did argue that one. I think I took one for the team on that one.
1: Definitely. When you found out that you would be arguing in front of the United States Supreme Court, what was your initial thoughts and the initial steps that you took?
2: Well, it's kind of funny because I was so involved in the process. I know the day, the first one, when cert was granted, we knew that cert might be granted. If you ever read anything like SCOTUS blog, they usually sort of have some idea of what has a good chance of being granted. So we knew this one might be granted, but when it got granted, we had to move into gear to figure out who was going to argue the case. And so I was very involved in making that decision. I had just become the head of the criminal division and I had done a lot of appellate work. So I had not argued the case before then, but it kind of made sense that I argue the case. Some of my bosses had some say in that and wanted me to argue it, but I don't think I really had time to think a whole lot about it when I first heard that. You know, it was just like, well, I guess we're going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, we had to wait for the petitioner to do his brief, but we sort of set things in motion to try to get things ready at that point. But we really didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it, but it was a team effort. I I ended up arguing the case, but there were four or five of us that worked on it.
1: And what is that like working so closely with other attorneys on a case? I mean, is it a lot of time spent with them? And what are the discussions like when you're deciding your strategy?
2: It is a lot of time, some arguments with other colleagues about what the best strategy is. We were consulting with people from, there's an organization called the National Association of Attorneys General, and they have somebody who actually his whole job is to help AG offices with U.S. Supreme Court cases. So we were consulting with him and talking with him about how to write things. And one of the good things about that case was we got the United States to be an amicus for us. So we talked a lot with the folks from the U.S. DOJ, from the Solicitor General's office. We went up and met with them so it was a lot of it was very collaborative but it was a lot because you're trying to figure out every just about every word you put in a brief you want it to be right and you've got to come up with a strategy like you said so it was a lot of time I mean it was there were fun aspects to it but it was it was very intense
1: and kind of talking about brief writing what do you think is the most valuable Skill a brief writer, a law student, or an attorney can have when it comes to writing an excellent, well written brief?
2: Well, I think clarity. And what I mean by that is, and some students think this doesn't sound right for a lawyer, but being simple. And I think being very simple, being very logical, you don't have to write a pretty brief. I mean, a lot of the best legal arguments are not very pretty. But they do make a lot of logical sense. So I think being as succinct as possible and as simple as possible, I think, is what I would say.
1: So when you went to the Supreme Court of the United States, what was the experience like? Was it a lot different than arguing in front of, say, a state appellate court? And what steps right before going up to argue did you go through to kind of prepare yourself for that moment?
2: Sure. You know, in the end, it's just a 30-minute argument like any other appellate court, or some appellate courts don't even have 30, some appellate courts have 20-minute arguments. But, you know, that part of it is just the same, but the rest of it is completely different. It was kind of a surreal experience. And preparing, each time I did it, we did three moot courts. When we did Hein, we did a moot court here at Campbell with some of the faculty as the judges for that. And then we did a couple other moot courts. So I didn't usually do three moot courts for an argument. So we went up to D.C. and went to Georgetown, has the preeminent moot court program for U.S. Supreme Court cases. And we went up there and did a moot court that was very intense. So that was kind of the preparation. But really being at the court itself was just sort of like an out-of-body experience. When you're standing there, And you're within a few feet of all these justices. Uh, At the time, Justice Scalia was still on the court. And of course, Justice Ginsburg was there. All of them are right there in front of you. It's kind of, our case in Hine was the only case that day. It was the very first case of the term. And when you're sitting there waiting, and then they have this sort of buzzer that goes off, and then they all walk out from behind a curtain like some kind of celebrities and they're suddenly there sitting in front of you. It was very surreal. One of the things I will say about that, just to add, is you get comfortable if you are in a certain court. I already get a lot in the North Carolina Supreme Court, the North Carolina Court of Appeals. And I worked at the North Carolina Court of Appeals, so I was comfortable at those places. But when you go somewhere you had not ever been there before, it's just different. And like I said, in that first case, Jeffrey Fisher was on the other side. He clerked there. He had argued a bunch of times. I felt like he had the home court advantage, and I did not. And you know, probably the funniest thing about that was, even though I had been in the courtroom, I had seen where to stand, where to sit, and everything like that, you have the meeting before you go in to the argument. The clerk sort of advises you on things to do, what not to do, and that kind of thing. And one of the things they said was the podium or lectern, whatever you want to call it, there was very old and it had a little crank on it that could make it go up and down. And the clerk said, It doesn't work very well. Whatever you do, don't mess with it. So I go into the argument. Jeffrey Fisher is about six foot four and I am vertically challenged. So he's a lot taller than me. And he got to go first. And he walks up, he cranked it all the way up as high as it could go. And I thought this is not good so you know, when i got up when it was my turn i actually tried to turn the crank to make it go back down and it didn't move so i do my entire argument it felt like the podium was right under my chin so i really was not comfortable but you know that's part of knowing where you are so i always tell people if you get a chance know those little things about a courtroom. The Court of Appeals used to have a podium that had just this very little lip on it that if you had something too big of a folder, it would fall off. But if you hadn't never done that before and you got there, you didn't know it was going to be like that. Anyway, that was a long answer, but I think that sort of explains how different it was.
1: Yeah, definitely. It sounds like a very unique experience that a lot of lawyers hope to be at one day. So there's a spoof out on the internet of your case where the justices and you and everybody else are dogs. (laughs) Have you seen that? And what do you think about it?
2: Oh, yes, I I have seen it. I don't know when I first saw it. I don't know who showed it to me, really, but I think... We had the first case that term, so I think that was one of the first ones that had been done for. And when I th- saw it, I, I think it's hilarious, and I, I don't know why I'm a sheep dog, uh, <laughs> you know. But but just to see all the justices as dogs, uh, Justice Ginsburg is uh, I think appropriately a chihuahua, and Justice Scalia is a, some kind of bulldog. So I don't somebody really thought about who would who would look good for these parts, but. I don't know somebody, how somebody stuck me with a sheepdog, but <laughs> it is funny. And you know, a lot of that, I think, was done to highlight the fact that you don't have video from the U.S. Supreme Court. You just have the audio. So, But yeah, I think it's, it's great. It's hilarious.
1: So we had talked about what makes a well-written brief. Could you talk a little bit more on what mistake oralists often make in oral argument and some skills that we can attempt to acquire to get over those common mistakes?
2: Well, I think, again, number one, as I sort of mentioned earlier, is being confident in what you say. And I think when you haven't done it a whole lot, it's hard to do that. Especially, I mean, as an advocate, you're often called upon to go make an argument that maybe you're not really that convinced is that great an argument, but you have to make it. So, I think having confidence and is a big one. I think answering questions directly is very important. If a judge asks you a question, they really want to know the answer. They don't want you to avoid the answer. So knowing how to answer the question and maybe it's a question that's really a hard question, but knowing how to answer the question that so it doesn't hurt you, I think is very important as well. but I think you know and, and the other thing is know if you know the record, you know the facts, you know the cases, That right along there with being confident, and a lot of times you'll be confident if you know all those things, but it's very difficult if you get asked something that you just don't know, you can't even begin to answer the question, you don't want to have that happen to you. So I think those are the things when I think about it the most. That and knowing when to concede a point here or there, sometimes that helps your credibility with the court to be able to say you're right, Your Honor, I think that case does hurt us, but here's a reason why we still win. So I think those are the kind of things I would tell people.
1: Yeah, I definitely feel like as a law student, as someone who has done moot courts before, it's sometimes hard to tell yourself that you can concede points without conceding your argument and that it actually can kind of bolster your credibility. And kind of a, a last question on that point, as a law student, I think one of the most daunting things that we go through is that first oral argument or that first mock legal skill. What would be your number one piece of advice to that very first student who maybe is not a good public speaker or thinks that they're not a good public speaker.
2: Well, I mean, first I would tell them everybody's in the same boat. So, I don't think it matters how many times you have argued. You're always going to have a certain amount of nerves. I mean, I, I argued a, a lot, but I still if I got up there now, I would be nervous. And I think if you can just channel that nervousness into something that is is good, I mean, nerves can actually work for you. There's a certain amount of adrenaline that is good to have. You just have to keep it under control. And I think for a lot of students, I think trying to slow down, don't speak quite so fast, take your time. It's okay. If you have a little stumble, just keep going. So I think those are things, especially people who haven't done it before, everybody wants to be perfect when they do it, but there's no such thing as a perfect argument. I'll tell people, I've never had an oral argument where I didn't leave and think, man, I wish I would have said something else. So you're always going to feel like that if it's your first argument, if it's your last one. So I think just to take your time and take it easy and it'll be okay. It's, it's easy for me to say. I know for some people that can be petrified about public speaking, but I think, and most of the people that are asking the questions, the judges and justices have all been in that same spot before. They've all done arguments, so they understand. And I think just like a professor who's doing this for, you know, having a student do this for a first time, court's know when people are there for the first time too. So they understand that.
1: And as a final question, based on Campbell Law School's university mission, what does it mean to you to lead with purpose?
2: Yeah, you know, I've never really thought about that a whole lot. But I think, I guess there are people who lead without purpose. They're just out there. They just want to be a leader. But I think Campbell has always had a certain mission to put lawyers out there who are doing good things in their community and I think rather than just leading for the sake of leading or you know you want to be a leader because you want to I don't know make a lot of money or whatever it seems to me that leading with a purpose means being mission-minded in some way whatever that means to you about your community and about the people around you. So I I think Campbell has always done a good job of, of that. So I think that is what I would think of when I think of leading with purpose.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and your wisdom about appellate cases and telling us about your background.
2: Well, thank you. I was glad to be here. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please go and rate us five stars on the Apple Podcast app and look for more episodes on any of our other platforms.
0: Thank you for listening to the Campbell Law Reporter Podcast. We look forward to you joining us every other Wednesday at 7 a.m. for a new episode, which can be accessed through your preferred podcasting listening platform.